Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Alex Epstein, author of the new book, Fossil Future. We talk about the moral case for why we need more fossil fuels going forward and not less. Alex makes the case that the benefits of fossil fuels greatly outweigh the drawbacks. There we go. All right. All right. So we are here uh, in the in the Unchained Capital Bitcoin Common Studios with Alex Epstein, author of the new book, Fossil Future. Um, of course, uh, he had a previous book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, which was um, a New York Times bestseller, if I, if I remember. Yes, although yeah. it turns out I just learned it. this wasn't <laughs> the first week, even though I can't give the exact numbers, but there are books, it outsold 14 of 15 books uh -huh. on the New York Times bestseller list, uh -huh. the national bestseller list. So back in the moral case, it was easier to get on the bestseller list in part because they had a science bestseller list, which is what I got on. Uh -huh. uh, but anyway, this is, yeah, this is not going to be a New York Times bestseller apparently, but it's a lot better and it's selling a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> this particular book. This one, yeah, it sold, uh -huh. it sold basically 20,000 copies in the first week. Oh my goodness. Wow. That's, uh, that's doing pretty well. So, um, before we get to the book and everything else, let's uh, let's get a little bit on your background because I, I find your background absolutely fascinating because you're you're not uh, you know what most people might expect like maybe a geologist or something like that. You actually come from philosophy. Can you tell us a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, I think so, depending on their inclination, people will think, oh, you know, you're pro fossil fuels, so it must be the fossil fuel industry like hunted you down <laughs> and said, here's a we've got to get, this guy has all the makings of a of a champion or a lobbyist, so oh. we're gonna pay him a bunch of money to say all of these things. And mm. I like I wish they did that, not not for me, but I wish they had that kind of confidence that mm. they would do that. But yeah, my background was I mean it's a long story, but I was kind of a very tech oriented kid, like mm. went to the top one of the top math science high schools in the country. Uh, really loved that stuff, but I discovered I loved even more thinking about we've got human action here, <laughs> right? But it was really like I found human action even more interesting than thinking about math and science. Mm. And then I realized, well, there's a subject that really studies the fundamentals of that. Of course, I mean, Mises would say economics, but mm. it's like philosophy, I think, is fundamental to economics. Mm. And it's really all about what's the, the basic framework that guides all of our thinking and action. In mm. particular, what are our thinking methods, what are our assumptions, and what are our values? And I, I, I was in computer science at, at Duke. I sort of, it was very hard for me to go into the humanities. I, I thought it was for <laughs> losers. And I, like, I only admired athletes and business people. Mm. And it was, but I was like, I loved it so much, I couldn't, I just couldn't deny it when I turned 20. So I go to my computer science advisor and say, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm never programming again. And, and I said, I'm going to become a philosopher. I was like, this is the worst idea ever, right? Nobody ever has a problem and says, let's call a philosopher, this kind of thing. But I thought of it as this is the most practical field to me because it's, cause it's like your, your thinking methods, your assumptions, values, that, that determines everything about your life determines everything about a field. And as we'll see, that's really what's determining people's thinking about energy, not not almost overwhelmingly not specific disputes over facts. Mm. So that I had no, I, I was not pro fossil fuels, mm -hmm. but I, I think I had a good way of thinking and I was aware of thinking methods and, and assumptions and values underlying thinking methods. So then when I came to look, when I was 27, so I spent seven years as a writer, mm. 
with almost no interest in energy, no knowledge. But then I was 27, I realized, wow, energy is the industry that powers every other industry. Mm. And clearly like fossil fuels in particular are really, really good at providing cost-effective energy in a way that nothing else is, including they feed us, like without <laughs> modern fossil fuel agriculture, diesel powered machines and natural gas derived fertilizer, like mm. 8 billion people could not be fed. And I noticed nobody is talking about these benefits. <laughs> so they're making the most basic error, which is you're evaluating what to do about something, in this mm. case, what to do about our use of fossil fuels, but you're ignoring the benefits. Mm -hmm. And that anytime I see that, like anytime I feel like what I'm told is the truth is, is screwed up and I'm somehow being screwed, like I become really interested in, okay, what's the actual truth of this? And so that, started me on a journey in 2007, and here we are in 2022, and I'm world's biggest advocate of fossil fuels. I did not intend to be. <laughs> yeah, so let, let's go back a little bit, because uh, the, the ph philosophy and sort of studying things from first principles, I, I, I think that gets a lot of respect, especially in the Bitcoin community mm -hmm. and so on. Um, can you explain exactly how that relates to philosophy and where, where people generally go wrong in patterns of thought? So, so how first principles relates to philosophy? Or yeah, or, or how how people generally do bad philosophy. Let's let's put it that way. How, uh, what what what's wrong with how people think today? So there are a lot of levels of this. So one thing is mm -hmm. just n not being aware mm -hmm. that there is a way that you think and mm -hmm. that you could think differently mm -hmm. about things. So you take a usual thing about. Well, let's just take energy issues mm -hmm. since we're talking about that. And you have mm -hmm. a book. And, and I'll give an example that I'm very critical of. A guy named mm -hmm. Michael Mann, who's one of our leading, what I call designated experts mm -hmm. on these issues. He He's the one, you know, when we hear, listen to the scientists, he's mm -hmm. a climate scientist. He's telling us what to do. He has a whole book on this stuff. And it doesn't mention, it talks about how fossil fuels will allegedly be bad for agriculture, but it doesn't mention once the benefits of fossil fuels for agriculture, even mm -hmm. though as I said, 8 billion people depend on fossil fuels mm -hmm. and, and attributes of fossil fuels that are very hard to substitute for, let alone mm -hmm. totally replace. So what's going on with man is, is did he, before he wrote this book, did he or his equivalent, because many other people do this, did he think about what's my method mm -hmm. by which I'm going to evaluate this question mm -hmm. of what to do about fossil fuels? And I don't think when people are evaluating what to do, I think they rarely think about what the method is. I think what they tend to do is they just pick up whatever method, usually bad method is being used, mm -hmm. and then they go with it. So I think in his case, it's the, the method that's being used is everyone is already only looking at the side effects of fossil fuels, namely climate. Mm -hmm. So you don't even think about the benefits. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of, you, you think your job is just to show that fossil fuels are having climate impacts. And then once you do that, that means fossil fuels are bad. Whereas if you step <laughs> back, you would think that makes no sense at all, mm -hmm. right? Because you, like, you'd have to show really that the, even one, the negative climate impacts outweigh the positive, but mm. more importantly, that the negative impacts aren't outweighed by these huge positives of fossil fuels that are pretty straightforward. So it's just an example of, he's not thinking about or his equip, maybe he's not being honest, but somebody even who's honest cannot think about, hey, how am I gonna evaluate this issue? And so one principle I use that's very helpful is just, I say, I, I wanna engage in a full context evaluation, which mm. in, in this situation means I wanna look carefully at the benefits and side effects of the different alternatives, and I wanna weigh them. But mm. then there, there's other things as well, because then there's, you know, I think one you're interested in, when you're talking about benefits and side effects, there's a question of, well, how do you define mm -hmm. what's a benefit? benefit mm to whom mm -hmm. and for what purpose. And when we're talking about the world, if you look at it, you see, well, some people 
are are talking about it in terms of the goal seems to be we want to impact the earth as little as possible. So when people mm. say net zero, they're saying that's our main goal. We want to eliminate CO2 emissions at all costs. And that's our goal. Mm. And I would say, well, is that a valid goal? Like, why are you choosing <laughs> this? To, or you even see in COVID, like some the goal implicit in a lot of the COVID stuff was let's eliminate this virus, mm. not to equate CO2 emissions to the virus, but it's the singular focus and it's not questioned. Mm. So there's this question of what is your primary moral goal when you're when you're evaluating things. You're, you're if you if you're talking about benefits, it means benefits to achieve some goal. So what is that goal? And that's going to determine that's going to be that's going to mean the standard by which you say this is good or bad. So for me, I think of it as my goal when I'm thinking about the world as a whole is advancing human flourishing on Earth. Mm. And I think of the dominant goal that people don't really think about, but is eliminating human impact on Earth. And that's I think that explains a lot why people don't focus on the benefits of fossil fuels because the goal they've accepted doesn't regard benefits to humans as important mm. and sometimes it regards them as negative because if humans proliferate that actually impacts the planet more mm. right and so if your goal is to eliminate human impact you don't see that as a benefit mm. even though it's a benefit to humans but humans are not what you're optimizing mm. uh, for and then another thing is is assumptions so we're dealing with a lot of predictions when mm -hmm. we're dealing we're dealing with predictions about energy but in particular predictions about climate so there's a question when you're making predictions, well, what what unstated assumptions are in those predictions about the future? Mm. And I think one big unstated assumption is what I call the delicate nurture assumption, which is the idea that nature exists when before we impact it, it exists in this delicate nurturing balance. So it's mm. it's stable, doesn't change too much. Mm. It's uh it's sufficient. So it it gives us what we need as long as we're not too greedy. Mm. And it's safe. Like it, you know, like we think of climate as safe. And this is just pure mythology. This is not at all how the world works, right? But we treat it that way. You hear, mm -hmm. I, I think of nature as wild potential. So it's, it's dynamic, changes mm -hmm. all the time and on many different levels. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, um, it's deficient, doesn't give us nearly what we need, even when there's a small number of people, let alone 8 billion. Mm -hmm. And then it's very dangerous. Like you're mm -hmm. constantly threatened by other organisms that many of which compete with us. And then you're threatened by inanimate forces mm -hmm. uh, such as climate, which are a menace to human beings throughout mm -hmm. history. And only recently have actually become something that's not a daily problem. Even though we talk about climate crisis, climate crisis actually the history of humanity was just a giant climate crisis until <laughs> like the last hundred years when we figured out how to master it. But if you, if you have this idea that nature is a delicate nurture, you are going to predict that anytime we impact it on a significant scale, there's going to be a catastrophe. Nature is going to punish us like a vengeful Gaia or vengeful like natural, you know, nature God is going to punish us. And, and I think this explains many of your viewers slash listeners are probably familiar with there. This, there's this history of 50 years of these crazy environmental predictions that always end up being the opposite, <laughs> right? So we're going to run out of resources and we have more resources. Mm -hmm. Pollution is going to become unbearable. We actually have better environmental quality. And then it's going to be catastrophically colder and catastrophically warmer. Mm -hmm. And wh when the temperature is going down or up, it's not a catastrophe at all. We're actually safer than ever mm. from climate. So I, I believe that it's this assumption that nature is a delicate nurture that leads people to expect this, mm. these disasters. And then it's why we it's part of why we don't invalidate the alleged experts who predict them. Like they're mm. still. So you have this guy, Paul Ehrlich who's been our designated leading environmental expert since the 60s, and he's been wrong on every single thing. <laughs> like he's been 180 degrees wrong. So he's predicted to get much worse and it got much better, uh -huh. but he's still consulted regularly. Mm -hmm. But it's because the, the, the people consulting him also believe nature is a delicate nurture. So they mm -hmm. think, oh, well this year, okay, it didn't happen for the last 50 years, 
but this year it's all going <laughs> to explode. But it's that's the power of an unquestioned assumption. So this, I think people can see just with these examples how philosophy is so it affects so much. Mm. And so you, the first thing is just to be aware of that philosophy, your methods, assumptions, and values are mm. shaping things. And then you can think about what yours are and what which ones you've been accepting in the by following the mainstream way of thinking. Mm. Well, so you mentioned the delicate nature assumption, yeah. which uh, I, I think underlies a lot of this. How did that sneak in to people's psyche? Because uh, like, I think reading your book mm -hmm. and thinking about it, I'm like, yeah, of course it's not a delicate nurture. Right. Yet that is sort of like the operating assumption that a lot of people go under. Like sort of psychologically or philosophically, how, how did people come to make that assumption and why why is that so prevalent uh, in you know, a world that's supposedly rational or something like that? So one level of explanation that's not entirely satisfying mm -hmm. is that the school system mm -hmm. promoted it, but that, mm -hmm. I think that's undoubtedly true. So mm -hmm. I grew up, you know, I was born in 1980, so I grew mm -hmm. up in the 80s and 90s in terms of my you know, elementary, middle school, high school education. And we totally got this view, right? Mm -hmm. That there's this delicate balance and that we're ruining it <laughs> and and that we need to stop. Mm. And and part of what's omitted and so it's it's that and a crucial thing I think is what's omitted is what life was like before industrialization, mm. before people I, I call it empowerment, so before mm. people could use machines to become productive and prosperous. Because if you really understand how bad life was before we had machines to amplify and expand our, our naturally very meager abilities. Like you're afraid of living in nature, right? You're not afraid of changing nature primarily. You're afraid of, of not changing nature, of not being productive enough to turn the deficient and dangerous planet into an abundant and safe planet. So the lack of proper education about industry is a huge thing. And, and I'll mm -hmm. just, the way I got it was, you, you learned, okay, the industrial revolution and what you learn at least in my curriculum was mm -hmm. workers got treated badly, there mm -hmm. was pollution, mm -hmm. the end <laughs> versus life expectancy was 30 uh -huh. and it rapidly drove up in this like hockey oh, sorry this uh, hockey stick mm -hmm. pattern yeah. and the same with income and the same mm -hmm. with the number of people on the planet and that in fact we had this we had this miraculous like there's just i call these the the human flourishing hockey sticks we have this miraculous phenomenon of life on earth stagnates indefinitely in the past and then suddenly you get the hockey stick of life expectancy the hockey stick of income the mm -hmm. hockey stick of population and it just so happens, not just so happens to correlate with the hockey stick of CO2 emissions mm -hmm. and fossil fuel use. And my explanation is, well, energy, the, the availability of low cost, reliable energy is a driving force because that allows us, allowed us to use machines mm -hmm. and that vastly expanded uh, and, and amplified our, our productive abilities. But if you don't know that, what happens is you grow up in a society that has mastered nature through the use of machines, but you think of that as natural. Mm. So then it's then all your fear is around what if we change this but you don't realize the thing you should re the real delicate nurture is all the machines and all the freedom mm. like that's the delicate nurture like you see what happened in Venezuela right mm. they take away the freedom the machines stop working average person loses something like 25 pounds involuntarily like mm. that's the real but so it's like actually what we've created our civilization is in many ways a delicate nurture it's actually mm -hmm. the reverse but it's those are some reasons why we don't get it and i think beneath that there are some badly motivated people who want us to believe in the delicate nurture 
because then A, will be afraid enough to support their policies, mm. and B, will be optimistic that if we live a more natural life, it'll get good. Mm. Wow. Um, and the the people that are sort of like uh, putting this assumption into our heads, mm -hmm. I, I, you, you mentioned schools and stuff. Um, in your book, you call them uh, synthesizers, disseminators, evaluators, mm -hmm. uh, the, the people that sort of take the scientific research and essentially summarize it in various forms. Mm -hmm. um, they seem to have that assumption as well. And that, that, that comes through in their summaries um, and sort of exaggerate whatever, you know, morsels that they get from the actual researchers. Mm -hmm. They take facts and put them into this philosophical context, if you will, that essentially makes it catastrophic so that we are forced to act. Um, in your book, you, you claim that they're just doing their jobs badly. And I was thinking, they're not doing it badly. They're doing exactly what they're intending to do, which mm -hmm. is manipulating other people. And wh what I thought was, this is, this is very much propaganda. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's a way to get people to behave differently, think differently, have different assumptions, and sneak in these assumptions under the hood, like your delicate um, nurture assumption about nature. Um, in, in what ways, uh, like, how do you combat that as somebody that's actually like, like reading something like this and actually having some of these ideas that can potentially challenge some of these um, assumptions that come on, in under the guise of facts, I guess. So there's a lot there. Mm. I think, let's see, where, where do we start here? The <laughs> So my goal is to, sh like, I always like showing what's actually operating in people's minds and the logic of it. Mm -hmm. And secondary to that is what's the motivation of it. Because if mm -hmm. you take something like delicate nurture, whether people honestly believe it or not, mm -hmm. that's shaping our expectations about the impacts of fossil fuels. I think that's mm -hmm. clear. And the same thing is true with this view that human impact is immoral and our goal should be to eliminate human impact on mm -hmm. earth. I don't think most people, most of the people advocating that on different levels don't even know what they're doing, mm. but they're still doing it. And I talk in chapter three about how often, there, there are various ways in which we disguise the goal. So we think, oh, we're just saving the planet. We're just protecting the environment. And we think that means, we think that means, oh, that just means clean air and clean water. So when we mm -hmm. hear eliminate our impact, we just think, oh, we're just gonna eliminate the human harming impacts. Mm -hmm. But it's not about that, it's about eliminating all the impacts. That's mm -hmm. why we get hostility toward not just fossil fuels, but nuclear, hydro, mining, washing mm -hmm. machines, like all of industry, all of machines have this hostility, but it's it's disguised. So it's really hard even to show, I mean, what I'm trying to show in the first part of the book is our thinking, there's something wrong about the thinking that we're told all the experts think. Mm. And one is it's ignoring the benefits, and two, it's what's called catastrophizing the side effects. Mm. And underlying this is this this goal of eliminating human impact, and this um, what I call delicate nurture, and I call this the anti-impact framework. And mm. and you can summarize it as the belief that human impact on nature is intrinsically immoral mm. and inevitably self-destructive. And my view is, if you look at energy, any form of energy, but certainly fossil fuels, you will inevitably conclude that it's immoral and catastrophic, even if it's making the world far better because you'll ignore all of its benefits because they involve impact, which you think mm -hmm. is bad. 
And because you have this delicate nurture view, you'll expect a catastrophe even for humans because mm -hmm. you haven't questioned that. And so the view of the book is we need a new framework. We need to get, as long as we're on this framework, it's going to be a disaster. And so we need what I call the human flourishing framework where the goal is to advance human flourishing on earth. And you recognize that, that earth is wild potential, not a delicate nurture. And then you need to do the full context like benefits and side effects. And so my view is that the, what I call knowledge systems, so you mentioned the synthesizers, the disseminators, mm -hmm. the evaluators. So there's the first are the researchers, the people who, mm -hmm. who study the world and they can be, and they can be and are distorted by mm -hmm. the anti-impact framework too, but that's harder to prove. So I can only really show that in the later part of the book, mm -hmm. but yeah, the synthesizers, so the people who are synthesizing the research, they are believing in they are not sufficiently valuing human flourishing and they have this belief that impact is bad. Mm. And you can see that by the fact that the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, doesn't even mention the rapid decline in climate-related deaths, mm. particularly disaster deaths, which that's, how could a climate organization not mention that we're <laughs> far safer from climate, right? That's like mm. a polio organization mentioning that we're not far safer mm -hmm. from polio. And then you see, I show other distortions. So, But I, I'm not primarily focused on the motives of everyone, mm. except the philosophical motives that we can see operating, because I think that's what's necessary. You asked about educating the public. Mm. I think what's necessary to the public is just to have the, like, you know, have have the clarity of here's how our minds are operating. Here's mm. how our leading thinkers are operating. Do you agree with this? Mm. And my view is most people will not sign on to the anti-impact framework if they know what it is. Mm. And they will sign on to the human flourishing framework if they know what it is. So I like, I'm 100% focused on just showing what's actually operating in people's minds and not much on the psychology of why, although I do agree that in many cases it's it's malicious and it can't be fully understood without, without a certain amount of malice. Yeah, it's interesting to me because uh, we see something very similar happening in Bitcoin. Uh, mm -hmm. Oftentimes people need essentially a new framework to evaluate everything because mm -hmm. they're operating under the assumption that the dollar is good, that fiat money is great, and that you know the, the economy and the way everything works with the Federal Reserve and central banking, like much of which they have no idea how it works, mm -hmm. that uh, because it's the status quo, that it's, uh, it's, it's sort of good because of that. And mm -hmm. sort of breaking them out of that assumption is really job number one for a lot of Bitcoiners because what what do most people complain about when they think about Bitcoin? Oh, it's too volatile. Yeah, because you're coming from the framework of, okay, the US dollar is all I use and therefore it's going to be disruptive on a day-to-day -day basis. Well, what, what about the actual moral case for something that's politically neutral or that doesn't steal from everybody and so on. Um, but uh, I, I wanted to ask you about um, the entire, um, uh, well, I mean, you, you pointed out that there are lots of benefits to fossil fuels, which essentially completely get ignored. And I, I think lots reading, of benefits is an understatement, right? Yeah, I, I don't think the world is livable without fossil fuels. Yeah, I, and reading the book, I uh, I felt like, oh my goodness, yeah, he's right. They, all of these things, pretty much all of civilization, requires some form of fossil fuels. And um, one of the assu uh, assumptions, again, um, sort of like side by side with the delicate nurture assumption, is that. Uh, you know, fossil fuels are just, you know, maybe they power cars or something and that's it, right? Mm -hmm. Like there, there's a very limited scope 
by which people think of fossil fuels. Like there, there's just, you know, you point out in the book, you know, like industrial heating and like transportation and all of the different products that are made with petroleum and, mm -hmm. you know, ju like just pretty much everything that you see uh, mm -hmm. has some petroleum product in it. And to think, okay, well, we're gonna have net zero. Like it, it just, it just seems kind of crazy. Uh, what, what, what is it about um, the current framework? Uh, like, or have we just gotten too used to it? Why, why don't we know about all of these things? Like, what, what, what's the missing link here? Well, it's an achievement to understand the world that exists now. So, if mm -hmm. you just brought in a, you know, an alien, they mm -hmm. wouldn't know how it works, <laughs> right? And, and they wouldn't even have a frame of reference necessarily, mm. depending on where they came from. Mm. And so there's a job of a society that's achieved things to explain the achievement to you know, the children in the society mm. Mm. so that they can, they can preserve the achievement slash build on the achievement mm. and, and change the achievement insofar as it needs to be changed. But one of the problems we have is it's it's not viewed the fossil fuel achievement is not viewed that way in that a the world is not viewed as amazingly good mm -hmm. so i talk about there's a survey of college educated people in europe and 55 percent of them think that extreme poverty is getting worse mm. in the world even though since i was born in 1980 it's gone from over four in ten people living on less than two dollars a day to one in ten mm. So you just think about it, that's the greatest alleviation of poverty in history. Mm. And half, more than half these college educated adults think it's getting worse. 33% thought it was the same, 12% thought it was improving. Mm. So a tiny minority, right? Think mm. less than one in seven thinks it's uh, improving. So if you don't understand the world today is this achievement that we wanna preserve and, and build on, that's one thing you're not going to be so interested in what caused the achievement because you think it's not an achievement right you don't mm. even recognize how good it is you don't have the curiosity that say an alien from a poor planet would have <laughs> or a time traveler from a like a time traveler from a poor part of the past would be they couldn't they would be so blown away by what we have in terms mm. of our resources and capabilities and they would be so curious mm. like what makes it all possible because i was here 300 years ago and like the water sucked and it was really hard to get food and the food wasn't good and i could barely build a shelter and now we're we have a freaking what are we in this studio where we just talk <laughs> and people can hear it later and you get paid like what is going on it doesn't make any sense and then you sort of have to explain oh well like we figured out how instead of us doing all the work ourselves we can get the machines to do 75 times more work than we can do and so we can just have a pretty relaxed life and sometimes some of us can just talk and move a pencil or type mm -hmm. for a living. It's like you, you get interested in that, right? Mm -hmm. you, and then you get, okay, well, it's really the key is what I call machine labor, having machines mm -hmm. do work for us. And then you become interested in, okay, what powers the machines? And then mm -hmm. it's, oh, well, for some reason, despite the fact that we've had dozens of competitors over the years, 80% comes from these things called fossil fuels and that's still growing. And you'd be mm -hmm. curious, like, why is that? And then that's his chapter five of my book talks about the secret sauce and partially it's, they have these amazing physical and chemical attributes. Like they're very, they're stored energy. They're like a natural battery. Mm -hmm. They're very concentrated. They're very abundant. And if you look at something like the sun and the wind, which our ancestors tried to harness, those are dilute and they're intermittent. There's mm -hmm. a lot of them, but they're dilute and they're intermittent. And that makes it so far impossible to do what you can do with fossil fuels. But I think it, it it's, we're not getting that, 
that education, and it, it starts with recognizing the world is amazingly good, that that it's really about machine labor, and that it's about like fossil fuels have have made an unbelievable amount of machine labor possible by being by far the most cost-effective source of energy we've ever discovered. It's not hard for people to get. I can usually explain it in 10 minutes, and mm -hmm. but we just don't get it from our system, and we get mm -hmm. the opposite. We get, we inherited this beautiful planet, and we ruined it, and so let's stop. <laughs> and we expect all this stuff to stay here. Mm. Yeah, uh, uh, one, one of the things from the book that really struck me uh, with regard to uh, you know machine labor, um, sort of enhancing the productivity of human labor mm -hmm. is that the poor, poorer developing countries essentially have less machines and less energy. And that's kind of why they stay poor. Um, and, you know, one, one of the moral cases that you make in the book is that really we need to be giving them a lot more energy in order- Or, or leave, certainly leaving them free. Yeah, and and not restricting them from yeah, uh, not pressuring them in any way. Yeah, uh, which is the exact opposite of what's been happening. Um, how do you view something like um, you know the ESG movement, sort of putting a lot of these restrictions on these countries, and like what? Um, how do you evaluate that from a moral perspective, and who who's actually like? Are, are we partly responsible for that? Like what, what, what's, uh, are we what's responsible for the predicament or are we responsible the ESG? Well, let's just say the ESG. So mm -hmm. I think of the ESG stuff of uh -huh. pressuring mm -hmm. any pressure away from mm -hmm. any pressuring of these places away from using fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. I think of it as the same as you pressuring like thieves to go take their food or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's like, I mean, just really directly harming very vulnerable people. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just, it's it's totally immoral. Mm -hmm. That's different from it's our fault. That mm -hmm. So it's our fault insofar as we encourage the state of affairs. Mm -hmm. But there's this other narrative that I disagree with that it's like, well, it's our fault that, that other people, that other places are poor. Mm -hmm. And then in particular, they're somehow poor because we've damaged their climate. And so we owe them <laughs> an unbelievable amount of money. Mm -hmm. And so what's actually true is poverty is the normal state. Mm. of human beings, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone is poor, doesn't matter like where you are, skin color, none of these, like everyone starts out poor mm -hmm. and the way to get wealthy is pretty straightforward in terms of you need some significant degree of economic freedom. Mm. And then a major use of that freedom is you empower using machines and then you become really productive. And then that starts what I call the virtuous circle of empowerment where you free up all that, you use machines to become more productive you free up time, mm -hmm. you can use that time and machines to innovate and figure out how to become even more productive and your pro productivity goes up and up and up versus when you're manual labor, you kind of stay at that level and you don't have much time and much ability to think about things. You certainly don't have computers to think about, help you think about things. So this is like, when people don't do this in, in the modern day, the primary reason is lack of freedom because we mm. know how to empower people and we've seen it happen in much of the world. We've seen it happen in Asia. We've seen it happen uh, in certain parts of South America, but Asia is probably the best example. And what's great about being advanced is we don't have to reinvent the wheel in terms of what, what England, say, had to do when they industrialized, like figure out a lot of stuff from scratch. Like we know how to 
make machines, we know how to power them. And so what you can do is you can, if a country is free, you can have foreign investment in the country that invests in a lot of this infrastructure and amplifying productivity so that the business makes profit, but the people are also wealthier. This is mm. this generally works really, really well if you protect everyone's rights. But if you don't have the right political institutions, you can't do this. And this is mm. the problem in a lot of Africa that I, I talk about. I didn't talk about this in Moral Case. I mean, there are many things I didn't talk about in Moral Case, but this is a particularly important one. I talk about the freedom to trade in chapter mm. 10. And without the freedom to trade, which includes, uh, so the freedom to trade includes you know, property rights, mm -hmm. contracts. If you don't have those things, who's gonna invest? Mm. If you can't, if your investment is not protected, and so it's very important to be pro fossil fuels and to not restrict them. But you also need to be pro freedom and pro property rights, and that's just as controversial in many people's eyes because they think, oh, that's Western. They'd call it racist, <laughs> which is insane because right? it's not about it's not about it's actually saying freedom is a universal value. Mm. I think that's undoubtedly true, mm. and to not believe that is to saddle people of certain skin colors with anti-freedom ideas and to say, mm. you have to have those because your ancestors, your immediate ancestors had those, mm. but all of our ancestors had those, <laughs> right? For, I mean, mine did, right? So everyone's ancestors had anti-freedom ideas. So in mm. the past, our ancestors, like if you live in the Western world, particularly the US, your ancestors broke out of the anti-freedom ideas, mm. but to treat it as inherent in, is to treat the current state of anti-freedom ideas as let's, let's stop all the anti places with anti-freedom ideas from evolving. Mm. I think that's per that's just as perverse as depriving people of energy. And those, those ideas which go under multiculturalism saying all cultures, all our ideas, all ideas are equally valuable. That's, that's a genocidal type mm. thing to tell people, yeah, you shouldn't be free mm. because your parents didn't believe it. Like my parents, parents, parents didn't believe it. I'm sure as hell glad they evolved out of that and believed in freedom. That's why we can be here. Mm. Well, so I, I wanted to run an idea by you. Okay. Um, so, um, by the way, you asked me if there's anything off limits. I'm really uh -huh. waiting for the the killer question. It's <laughs> gonna make me turn red. Oh, well, I, I I I don't plan to get personal, but uh, but you know, within the monetary sphere, uh, mm -hmm. we we know, for example, that. Um, the IMF, uh, the the way they operate is that they give these loans to mm -hmm. these countries. Um, the money is printed ex nihilo, so they create this money, lend it to these countries, and then give them a lot of restrictions on how to spend it. Mm -hmm. Inevitably, those countries can't pay it back, and uh, and then they go, "Well, you still have to pay this money back that we printed out of nothing." Mm -hmm. Ultimately, what ends up happening is that they sell the resources of the country, like mining rights or you know land or whatever, to Western corporations, and ultimately, a lot of the resources of a particular country end up being owned by people outside of that country. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it's kind of a racket that you know the IMF uh, has done, and they're you know even like former French colonial territories in Africa, many of them have a similar dynamic with the CFA and stuff like that. Um, and certainly China with the Belt and Road Initiative, they're doing something similar to sort of grab a lot of resources. What do you think about this idea that a lot of these um, sort of environmental restrictions that you put on these countries, it's a way to keep them um, from flourishing so that you can just sort of keep them under a form of imperialism. 
You mean in terms of that's the motive or that's the effect or both? <laughs> uh, I, I, I would think that it's kind of the motive because in a, in a sense, the international monetary organizations uh, of, of various stripes, they, they do this as a way to you know, uh, take a lot of these resources. So a lot of Central American countries were called banana republics for a long time mm -hmm. because Chiquita banana needed all of these places to produce bananas so they can sell them to, you know, the, the people in the United States. Uh, a lot of the resources in these places end up being um, used by Western corporations and the wealth essentially ends up back in the West rather than back into the local economies of these uh, places. It's hard because you know, when you have, I guess, when you have an anti-freedom government, mm. like there are a lot of bad outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so one kind of outcome is you make deals with foreign corporations that enrich mm. you mm -hmm. and don't, aren't particularly good, or not nearly as good for the people as if they had freedom, including property rights mm. in the country. But then, it's often true that they're they're better off with those deals than they would be if they weren't doing that and they just had the dictators. Mm. But it's it's a mess, and so it's part of why you need a like very dramatic reform in these places. And one thing that'll happen is people say like, oh, this this there was this abusive relationship with this corporation, so let's just get all the corporations out of here. Mm. But that can actually make things worse. So yeah, I mean really that's want, what happened with Cuba, right? <laughs> like they I mean, with, literally well, a lot of places. Everybody. So you need you need. Um, it really, you really need reform, and it's hard. It's mm. it's hard, but it's it's not. It, it's too easy to paint it as oh, here's an like here's sort of an external villain mm -hmm. that they're doing. But you know, there are many places that would there are many corporations that would love to do business in a place that respected property rights more. And, we, and China is such a mixed bag in this respect because it's very anti freedom mm. in many many ways. But it has these pockets of economic freedom and stability that have enabled companies to deal with them. And so you think mm. like, oh, these places, a lot of places like working in China and they, they can get really reliable arrangements, or at least they can on some time horizon. We'll see mm. We'll see what it is longer term. I wanna just make one more point about this exploitation thing though, because it's very important that, so we don't wanna restrict what I call the unempowered world from mm. empowering, mm -hmm. but it's not our fault that they haven't, in so, mm. except insofar as we've advocated restrictions, but that's mm. not the primary Thing. The primary thing is you, people start out poor and you stay poor unless you adopt radical pro-freedom ideas. Mm. That's kind of in one way or another. The final thing though is this climate thing I find very annoying mm -hmm. that it's we've ruined their lives with climate change. <laughs> uh, so it's wrong in so many ways, but just look at, if you look at it in chapter four of the book, I have these hockey sticks mm -hmm. of human flourishing and life expectancy. Those are not for the Western world. That's for the entire world. The life expectancy around the world has been skyrocketing and our fossil fueled productivity is a huge reason why you just think about like the improvement in clean water around the world and how much of that is possible by inventions in the fossil fuel world, sometimes charity from the fossil fuel world, mm -hmm. how, how uh, less endangered people are by storms in part because they can have foreign relief from mm -hmm. storms, the medical developments that have come that save countless lives, that you know, extend countless lives. So it's a real injustice toward the fossil fueled world to say, oh, you like you ruined the rest of the world. The rest of the world is so much better off, including they have drastically declining climate deaths too. So mm -hmm. there's this ridiculous racket that says, oh, well, we owe them a fortune. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> and then it's sometimes we pay the fortune they're going to spend it on inferior green energy which is that's all the perversions <laughs> together because it's unearned guilt and then keeping them poor mm -hmm. with inferior energy and this is the kind of thing the dictators love though because they can get rich right they mm -hmm. can they can get take the money spend some on green energy get a lot of it you know have their palaces and helicopters and stuff mm -hmm. and they're totally happy with that but it's a, it's a this climate justice movement it's like these movements are always the opposite of what they say so it's like climate justice is the opposite of justice it's unjust toward the productive fossil fueled world and it's unjust toward the unempowered world mm. well so thinking about that a little bit right like you 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 have these uh countries um oftentimes with dictators but oftentimes you know they're they might have a democratically elected government and well, they, I, well i think i think democracies can be dictatorial too yeah yeah I, but regardless they they um part part of what ends up happening is that they can't create like uh you know a working coal mine or something like that that could have a steady energy source for the rest of their population uh in part because the western world won't let them um, what do you mean like uh so if you try to go and build a coal power plant in mm -hmm. in a particular country how easy would that be versus like building a solar uh farm or something like that well i mean okay what what component of you so are you worried about somebody's going to stop you from building it or are you going to worry that you can't get the materials are you worried you can't get the expertise you can't get the money well all of the above uh like what the result seems to be that there's more kind of green stuff being built in developing countries so, rather than say like something much more efficient I mean, there's just not enough stuff being built, mm -hmm. I would say, period. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the thing is that these countries are all almost all signing on to these international agreements, particularly mm -hmm. the Paris Agreement. And the current interpretation of that is, you know, you should be getting rid of fossil fuels really quickly. Mm -hmm. And then you have all these financiers who are who are putting pressure in that direction. Mm -hmm. But it's if you were if you didn't care about those pressures and you could find the companies to deal with i mean it'd be easy it'd be more cost effective to build fossil fuels i mean nobody's being powered by solar and wind anywhere in the world mm -hmm. least of all being prosperous in africa mm -hmm. doing that so what's really happening is they're just not building the the energy infrastructure that they should be mm -hmm. uh building well I, but as you said like the financiers won't won't fund it a lot and, of it yeah yeah that's I, the, I mean it's part of the esg that's part yeah. of the evil of it mm -hmm. and it's it's this quasi-government, quasi-private phenomenon, mm. but it's it's been it's one of the scariest things. It's maybe this for me the scariest thing because it's it's not just governments; it's private organizations going far beyond what governments would do. Mm. So our you know our government hasn't really committed. It, certainly, we don't have any laws saying net zero, mm -hmm. but our corporations have been saying net zero for several years now, and they've been. And people like Larry Fink are pressuring all these companies to make these plans that voters would never <laughs> vote for. And so you've got this united, particularly when you have someone like Biden in office, you've got this front of this anti-fossil fuel president, these anti-fossil fuel corporations, anti-fossil fuel financial institutions. And so it's not lending to foreign places, but even I know a lot of people in the coal industry, like it's hard for them to even get insurance now. Mm. And so the basic working infrastructure of our, of our country is under threat by these by these policies and it's i think of it as we're almost in an electricity emergency right now you're having all these reports of 
likely outages or blackout risks around the country because we've restricted a lot of reduced fossil fuel capacity and increased unreliable solar and wind. And and ESG continues to push people to do this. They're it's now it's getting some pushback happily from mm -hmm. my mixed case Elon Musk. <laughs> uh, you know, my, the guy who blocked me on Twitter for calling the Tesla a good fossil fuel car, uh -huh. uh, but he's been good on this. And mm -hmm. you know, Peter Thiel and other people have been. So it's it's good that there's pushback, and I would just say it's not a moment too soon because this is a terrible movement. Mm -hmm. And until the last year or two, it had no pushback, mm -hmm. except probably from some people in the Bitcoin community and mm -hmm. from me. Mm. Well, it's interesting though that uh, that the oppression of fossil fuel building is largely monetary, like not being able to get insurance. That's a monetary mm -hmm. thing, right? Um, uh, not being able to get loans. I've, I've heard of oil and gas executives saying, well, I want to go and drill in this particular place, but the bank won't give me a right. loan. They, they just, it's like part of their ESG initiative right. that they can't give out these loans. That, um, that seems very much, um, you know, like sort of making policy through money or something yeah. like that. It's a, I, I don't know, what, what do they call it? Like a plutocracy or something? It's it's a scary thing and it's 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 hard to untangle. So there's a lot mm -hmm. of government involvement, but mm -hmm. it's how much of that is government, how much of that is social pressure, but it's in any case, it needs to be morally condemned. I mean, mm -hmm. we, if we've learned anything, it should be, you cannot shut down your reliable energy infrastructure <laughs> until you have a proven replacement that's actually working versus mm. Biden's thing is he promises this amazing replacement, mm -hmm. but he doesn't make the replacement. He just sh shuts down the Keystone XL pipeline and he mm -hmm. bans leasing and he threatens the industry. Like, that is horrific. That's, that's what's <laughs> caused the energy crisis is this, is you restrict what works in, in favor of the promise that mm. you don't, no works mm. and it turns out not to work mm. yeah and uh it certainly has had some serious consequences uh within the electrical grid I, I i think i saw a map earlier today about like which one which states which areas of the country at least here in the u.s um that are in large danger of power outages versus moderate yeah i mean it's most of the west it's uh kind of crazy because you would think that those would be the least like, i mean just given when well, we know uh, how to do it. this is the crazy thing uh -huh. that we know how to produce reliable electricity uh -huh. and for those who think it's a climate issue we know how to do it in Arctic conditions. We know how to do it in really hot. You can do it in uh -huh. Singapore. Uh -huh. So this idea that, oh, Texas is too hot. Like, uh -huh. how are we going to produce electric? Or it's too cold. Uh -huh. Also, like, how could you produce it in a Texas February storm? Uh -huh. It just, it just, it shows you it's all policy. Uh -huh. That's one way or another that we have policies that are preventing us from doing something that's pretty easy to do given the state of knowledge and, and technology. And yet, and one thing I want to encourage is people should be outraged by this and they should consider it embarrassing mm. that we have throughout the U.S. We're worried about can we keep the lights on in the summer? <laughs> like this isn't Thomas Edison just built the first power station, mm -hmm. right? We're way past that. Mm. This shouldn't be a question at all. And yet we're clearly regressing. And mm. so that's that's an, one of the benefits of this is it's an occasion to question who are we trusting as an expert on this? And and maybe we shouldn't. If if our designated experts have led us to the point where we're worried about keeping the lights on in mm. America of all places, something has gone very wrong. 
Well, so let's go back to the de designated experts because mm -hmm. that that exists in the economic realm, <laughs> that exists, exists in the energy realm, that yeah. exists in all kinds of things. Can you just replace them? Because in a sense, they're appointed for a particular purpose. And yeah. as far as I can tell, they serve the narrative of the people that pay them instead of you know seeking the truth as you have. So, so just so, so my terminology. Mm -hmm. So the system, the system by which we get expert knowledge and guidance, mm -hmm. I call the knowledge system. So that's mm -hmm. the researchers, the synthesizers, mm -hmm. disseminators, and the evaluators are the people who tell you this is really crucial. What do you do mm -hmm. about what's true? So if we're causing more drought with climate, what do you do? Mm -hmm. And you really have to always watch at that step. Same with mm -hmm. COVID. Like, okay, there's a new virus. It's dangerous to a certain degree. Uh, we don't have pre-existing immunity. What do you do about it? Mm -hmm. Whatever answer there is to what it is, it does not follow. You need to lock everyone down. Like that's an <laughs> that's an evaluation, mm -hmm. and you always have to question the evaluation. So whenever anyone tells you the scientists say do X, you know you're being conned because mm -hmm. nothing science says can tell you what to do. It can just factor in mm -hmm. to what you can do. So there's this whole system, and the people who are who are representing the whole system. Uh, or what I call the designated experts. Mm -hmm. So it would be, I use an example of this guy, Michael Mann, who mm -hmm. he's, when we say listen to the scientists, he's a designated expert who supposedly speaks for all scientists and all good thinking mm. about that. And I, I point out these designated experts are really bad and that they ignore the benefits and they have a really bad track record of catastrophizing the side effects of fossil fuels. And in other fields, you have these two. So can you just replace them? Well, if you identify what's going wrong with them, and what's going wrong with the the broader system people can be on the lookout for better experts like mm. i'm trying to i'm trying to become like the designated energy expert or mm -hmm. certainly one of them mm. in the society and part of what i'm doing i'm not in, i'm not doing it very gently either right i'm saying the existing ones are corrupt mm -hmm. they 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 are based on this they have this anti-human way of thinking that i call the anti-impact framework they're ignoring the benefits of fossil fuels. They're catastrophizing the side effects. They've caused an energy crisis, including a growing food crisis. You got to get rid of these people. And they're not mm -hmm. apologizing. They're not repenting. You got to get rid of these people and you need people on a human flourishing framework. And mm -hmm. I'm one of them. Uh, so I think you need to do that in other fields. I think it's mm -hmm. like you disagree with the financial establishment. It's a similar thing. It, mm -hmm. it depends on how significantly you disagree. If you just disagree on facts, then you can work within their framework. But if you think, no, the way you're thinking about this is totally wrong, you have a job of discrediting the existing experts, which is that's what chapters one through three of this book do. Mm -hmm. And then you wanna, and then you say, here's how an expert should actually function. Here's what their framework should be. And then you say, okay, now let's look at the facts from this framework. and. It's it's it happens though, right? I mean, you have mm -hmm. different people with the different. I mean, we used to have like you know genetics experts who were racists, and that was considered totally okay. Well, yeah, <laughs> eugenics used to be actually quite popular. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and you know, just racism in general in mm -hmm. science used to be really popular, and so mm. these things can change. And part of it is you discredit the wrong thing, and then you offer a positive alternative. Mm. Well, oftentimes it you need the designated experts that are current to die off first before the new designated experts kick Yeah, what is it like over. scientific progress is, is uh, measured in funerals? Yeah, that's something the, like that, that's right? The, that's right. Yeah, I'm not that patient because <laughs> I'm not that young. Uh -huh. I think I'm probably I'm about to be 42, so I think I'm uh -huh. above average age on the, I'm sure I'm above average age on the planet. Mm -hmm. So these people are not old enough for me to be happy to wait for them to die. So I have to <laughs> eviscerate them while we're all alive. Fair 
fair enough. And we've got the internet, so you can do things, everything more quickly. And uh, and you you can also get a following more quickly without necessarily going through the official channels, which is uh, which is part of what this book is all about. Um, all right, so I uh, I want to run something else by you. So um, we're seeing a labor shortage all over the world, mm-hmm. right? Like uh, I, I I was just in Amsterdam Airport and they constantly made announcements about how they had a staff shortage and that all of the services were just taking way, way longer. Mm -hmm. So all the lines were like an hour too long and even to get food or something like that, it took like 30 minutes. Mm and part of that uh, seems to be, uh, at least after reading your book, the, the thought occurred to me that, okay, if energy does sort of like multiply the productivity of labor, so each person, instead, uh, you know, you bring up in your book how, um, you know, a combine harvester does the work of like a thousand people. So yeah. instead of needing 1,000 people, you just use one person mm-hmm. and just, you know, feed that machine with lots of energy and you, you can, you don't need a thousand people anymore and all those other people are free to go and make podcasts or whatever. Um, or medical cures. Uh, right. Uh, but what, what we have here is, uh, is a labor shortage and it, not coincidentally, we've also had um, something of an energy shortage coming in, um, you know, partly due to wars and uh, partly due to, you know, shutting down nuclear power plants and so on. Uh, what do you think of this idea that labor shortages are really like at least partly energy cost? I think of them, I haven't thought this through systematically, but mm-hmm. I think of them both as evidence of freedom shortage. <laughs> Cause we have, you know, lack of, certainly with fossil fuels, lack of freedom to invest in, produce and transport them. Mm-hmm. That's really clear. And then you have an increase in demand Oh, you have an increase in demand post pandemic. Mm. And so, and in supply can't meet it, but it's, mm. it's artificial political type things. Mm. The labor thing is really interesting. Again, I haven't studied it systematically, but yet all, I mean, all the lockdown stuff, mm-hmm. and then you have all the anti-freedom stuff of subsidizing people not to work. Mm-hmm. And you've got a lot of anti-work rhetoric as well. And mm-hmm. like, you should only do work if it's like you regard it as the most meaningful thing ever and this kind of thing, which long-term that's great. So, but yeah, I mean, I just like what we should, maybe here's what I would say. The world, the fact that the world is malfunctioning so badly right now with what they call the supply chain crisis, Mm -hmm. that is definitely an anti-freedom crisis because this Mm -hmm. does not happen under freedom where you have trouble doing all of these basic things. Mm -hmm. And it's like the electricity crisis. We should be embarrassed and we should consider it completely intolerable versus even, you know, Saki, the former press secretary would make fun of it like, oh, you're worried about getting your treadmill or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, well, you're worried it's delayed by freedom. No, you should be worried. You should be worried if a modern civilization can't deliver your damn treadmill <laughs> in two months. That's a real problem. So mm-hmm. I, I think, and this is related to the finance stuff too. Like we have a freedom shortage in the world mm-hmm. and we're seeing these consequences, including inflation. And I think now is the time for pro-freedom people to seize the narrative and energy and finance in every and every realm. Mm. Well, uh, speaking of inflation, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is um, inflation does sort of like eat away at the value that you're producing. And I, okay. I think that, that that's pretty obvious. Uh, what what struck me about, uh, you know, your, your analysis of energy is that, well, we've been getting really good at extracting energy from fossil fuels for mm-hmm. a while. Um, you know, I, I was reading, for example, um, 
on airplanes, right? They they figure out ways to get like one or two percent more efficiency out of an airplane every year. They yeah. they're just like tiny things that they figure out. It's like okay. We I don't know like screw in this bolt harder or something like that and uh, lighter weight materials better engines yeah, yeah for yeah. sure uh, but s somehow they they just make everything more and more efficient um, and you know you're you're able to extract the energy more um, it seems to me that like what we should be feeling if we didn't have all of these all of this progress is you know just things get way more expensive as inflation goes up. And you know we we suffer, but mm -hmm. it seems to have been offset by essentially energy gains, right? Mm -hmm. Like all all of, all of the ways in which, uh, like for example, fracking is a, a major one where you know you got a lot more energy out of you know um, out of the ground uh, for a lot uh, and and had a lot more abundance in. An increase in productivity that sort of like offsets inflation a little bit. Yeah, at least your experience of the inflation. I mean, in general, mm -hmm. more broadly, mm -hmm. anything that increases your productivity per unit of time mm -hmm. is going to make the consequences of inflating the currency less obvious to people because they mm -hmm. don't see how much richer they would be if you mm -hmm. weren't inflating it. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, there's also just all these issues, and the Austrian school is interesting about this, is just when you inflate, it's like how it how it misallocates capital in all sorts of ways and do we have a bloated financial sector and this kind of thing and mm -hmm. um, inflation is a mess and it's really cool to me that i've believed this for a long time but i've been against fiat money for a long time but it's mm -hmm. it's exciting to me that the bitcoin world has really found a way to demonize fiat <laughs> money and I, I talk in my book about arguing to 100 on fossil fuels and how mm -hmm. to reframe it and i think bitcoin is a great model mm. for in terms of you guys really had a positive vision of here's what a much better world would look like currency-wise. Mm -hmm. And the way to get there is these pro-Bitcoin policies, including, I guess, buying it as part of that. Mm. But there are other reforms, you know, versus what the old Austrians used to do, which was mostly just argue against fiat money mm -hmm. and say, like, oh, if only we returned to the gold standard, which there was no really concrete thing you could do mm -hmm. to support that. So I regard a lot of it as arguing to zero. They're just saying, oh, it's bad for this reason, it's better. And you guys gave this new positive vision, but as a result of that, fiat money has also been denigrated in a way that I never imagined would happen <laughs> during my lifetime. So well, that was a uh, real uh, achievement. Well, uh, so explain the arguing to zero versus arguing to 100 kind of thing, because I, I thought that was a very powerful part of the book. Um, and I, I think what a lot of people that do argue for more po fossil fuels and against all of the stupid climate policies or whatever, um, they end up stuck in the arguing to zero. Whereas um, I, I think you make the argument that we should be arguing to 100. Um, so can you explain that? Sure, and I would say, it's, but it's notable, there aren't many people who argue for more fossil fuels. Usually mm -hmm. what they do is they argue against policies to restrict fossil fuels. So mm -hmm. even there, there's a defensive version. Mm -hmm. So arguing to 100 means that you argue that a given course of action will advance an inspiring moral goal so the mm. moral goal is the 100 and i think of it as every conversation has a moral goal mm. a good thing and then a moral evil mm. uh the bad thing so the classic example i use just not to support it or not but is just the example of donald trump because i think it was a very effective example where when he came into the debate 
it was framed as 100 was mm -hmm. more equality mm -hmm. and negative 100 is more inequality. That's definitely mm -hmm. how Clinton and the Democrats were framing it. And we want mm -hmm. to move to a more equal society, like economic equality in particular. Mm -hmm. And imagine if he had just uh, agreed with that framing mm -hmm. and he supports, say, more freedom for industry and pro-business policies. Mm -hmm. He couldn't have he couldn't really win. All he could do is they propose a policy that says, hey, this is, you know, this socialized medicine will get us to 100. He can just say, oh, that won't work for some reason. And I mm -hmm. call that arguing to zero. So you're just trying to say that your your attempt to pursue 100 won't work, but you don't you don't have your own inspiring thing. You're just saying no to theirs. Mm -hmm. Whereas what he actually did is he reframed it in terms of 100 was American greatness. So he had that expression, mm -hmm. make America great again. And negative 100 was American decline. And mm -hmm. so then he could argue, oh, my immigration policy is getting us toward greatness. And mm -hmm. oh, my foreign policy is getting us. And my economic policy, my healthcare mm -hmm. policy, and you can see it's just a much more powerful way to argue where you define the good and the bad mm. versus you allow the other side to. Mm. And so in fossil fuels, the way good is defined today for most people is the goal is to eliminate CO2 emissions and the evil is to use more fossil fuels. And if you accept that, then you can never advocate more fossil fuels. You can just shoot down a policy. You can just say, oh, the Paris Accord is too expensive mm -hmm. for the US or this solar company won't work. But you they control the direction because you're still going toward 100 mm. and away from negative 100. And so what I've done is I'm saying, no, I reject I reject as 100 eliminating CO2 emissions. Why should that be our goal? That doesn't make mm -hmm. any sense. Eliminate mm -hmm. CO2 emissions at all costs. Mm -hmm. It should, and then I have, you know, it should be advancing human flourishing around the world. And in particular, expanding human empowerment, having more people have cost-effective energy. And if that's the goal, then yes, more fossil fuels is obvious. And so you mm -hmm. can argue to 100 and the other side has to argue mm -hmm. to zero. So, you know, in Bitcoin, there's the equivalent of you always have a vision or a goal, and then you have a policy that achieves it. You have a mm -hmm. positive vision and a positive policy versus accepting their positive vision and then just trying to shoot down their positive policy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that that is, I think, way, way more effective. And, uh, and hopefully if, if you haven't, uh, you know, picked up a copy of uh, Alex's book. You really need to go read it because it's uh, mind-blowing in many, many different ways. And it just makes clear some very commonsensical things that I uh, that I I wish I could have articulated before <laughs> reading the book. Um, and, you know, just thinking about all of the benefits of fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I did try to write that in the Bitcoin Magazine article I wrote a few weeks ago. Um, but that, that, uh, it, it's it's got a wealth of resources. You guys should definitely check it out. Um, so where can people find you? Where can people contact you, Alex? So you can get information about the mm -hmm. book at fossilfuture.com. Obviously, you can order it on Amazon mm -hmm. uh, as well. But like, if you want to order bulk or anything like that, mm -hmm. I'll have all the latest at fossilfuture.com. Uh, I'm really big on Twitter. <laughs> so I hope you promote this on Twitter and I'll, I'll <laughs> share it. So I'm at Alex Epstein on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And then I think the other thing is I have a website called energytalkingpoints.com where you can get really, so this is a 420 page book <laughs> that's like a systematic energy re-education. And I think it's valuable and I think it'd be amazing for you if you read it. But I also think it's valuable to have Twitter length talking points on every issue. So energytalkingpoints.com is free and you can go there, get on that mailing list and you can search any issue you want and get like, here's a well-referenced point on it. So I like uh, you going from the most extreme in-depth thing to like these laser focused talking <laughs> points. So I think that'll, that'll give you the, I'm trying to create resources that everyone can use to think more clearly and to be more persuasive on these issues. And so that's 
that's the gamut. The book, energytalkingpoints.com, and then me on Twitter. Those are the three. All right. Well, that was, uh, I wow, it's been over an hour and it went really fast. So uh, yeah. thank you for, thank for you having for me. Yeah. Unchained Capital is a sponsor of this podcast. I'm an advisor to the company. I know the team well, and I'm excited for what they are building. If you need multi-sig, collaborative custody, or a Bitcoin-native financial services partner, learn more at Unchained.com. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Alex Epstein can be found at at Alex Epstein on Twitter and alexepstein.substack.com. Until next time, fiat the lend est.